You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Andy Slavitt, former White House Senior Advisor on Coronavirus Response, joins the Post to discuss his new book, Preventable, the inside story of how leadership failures, politics, and selfishness doom the U.S. coronavirus response. Let's listen. Welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm David Ignatius, a columnist for the Post. We've had quite a week in foreign policy, and I'm very pleased that our guest this morning is Ben Rhodes, former Deputy National Security Advisor to President Obama, now a prominent commentator on foreign policy and the author of a new book, uh, After the Fall, Being American in the World We've Made, uh, which is like Ben's previous book, The World As It Is, a very interesting and provocative look at foreign policy issues. Ben, welcome. I'm glad you could join us. Thanks, David. Good to see you. So uh, let's start with yesterday's news. Uh, How did Biden do? Uh, What's your uh, sense of the of the summit, uh, its achievements, uh, what it didn't achieve? I mean, I I think he did about as well as he could, which is, you know, you're not going to change Vladimir Putin. Um, You're not going to fundamentally fix all of these issues where we have problems with him. Um, and the trajectory has been steadily getting worse there for for a long time. And so, if you look at cyber attacks, if you look at the you know, disinformation campaigns and efforts to undermine our own democracy, if you look at the increasingly brutal repression of the opposition there, and and I talked to Alexei Navalny for for this book, um, you look at Ukraine. I mean, there, the list is just mounted in terms of Putin's disregard for American opinion or the opinion of the democratic world. And I think what uh, Biden was hoping to do is essentially see if he could test whether it was possible to arrest the escalatory cycle that he found himself in with Russia at the outset of his presidency to lay down, I think, in pretty general terms, um, here are our interests, here's a, a set of warnings, essentially, if you continue this kind of activity, you're going to face uh, a certain amount of consequences from us. And just you know, use that to kind of measure progress six months from now, a year from now. I thought he was very wise in his press conference to not overly raise expectations that there's going to be a significant change out of Russia. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I don't know that it, it it dramatically alters the trajectory of events. I think it's worth testing whether a face-to-face meeting in which you kind of lay down at the beginning of your presidency, your view of a whole range of issues makes sense to do. Um, I think, you know, Ultimately, they're probably going to be managing, though, a Putin who's going to do what he's going to do. Um, and, and they're just going to have to try to contain that um, and, and, and mitigate the consequences. There were competing views, as you know, Ben, about whether it made sense for Biden to have this meeting at all. Leonid Volk, Volkov, who's uh, Alexei Navalny's chief of staff, uh, said to a number of us that he thought uh, basically Putin just wanted a selfie with Biden yeah. uh, to take home as a, as, a, as a trophy. Biden himself, in the run-up to this meeting, seemed to be working very hard to speak to the part of Putin that has that heavy chip on his shoulder, uh, wants so much to be taken seriously. I thought uh, his comment before the meeting that he, he'd be with a worthy adversary was almost, you know, <laughs> amazing piece of, of a contrived uh, flattery to, to, to 
set him up on the pedestal where he'd like to be. Was that smart? And was it smart to do this meeting uh, and appeal to that vanity in, in Putin in the first place? I'm not sure. Uh, you know, again, I really had to, for this book, I, I, I really tried to inhabit the Putin worldview. Um, and, uh, you know, I did it through the experience of people like Alexei Navalny or Jana Nemsova, whose father, Boris Nemtsov, was killed uh, in the shadow of the Kremlin, people who've suffered the, the, the tip of the spear of Putin's repression, but also going back to the, the beginning of Putinism, really. And kind of what, what I found is you, you have kind of two, two strains to this. One is quite simple. Uh, Vladimir Putin would like to be very wealthy and very powerful. And it's as simple as that. And, and, and so everything he does, to some extent, is about maintaining that control, that dominance of Russia, its political life, and its natural resources. And that's what Navalny was ingenious at pointing out, just the kind of core corruption to this whole project, that the ideology that Putin wraps around it is kind of the justification for the core project, which is just his own power. Um, I do think related to that, there's a worldview that suggests that you know Putin wants Russia to be obviously taken seriously in the world stage. And, and there's a line that I kind of feel is at the kind of core of Putinism. He, he gave this speech after Beslan, which I, I go back to the horrific uh, terrorist event um, in, in 2004, um, which scores of Russian children were killed. And he said, you know, he basically chastised the Russian people for what had happened with the collapse of the Soviet Union, what had happened through the kind of chaotic freewheeling 90s. And he said, we were weak and the weak are beaten. And I think that's like the core of Putinism right there, <laughs> that, that you, you, know, you never show weakness, the weak are beaten. And so I don't, I, I agree that um, he wants to be on the world stage. He wants to be seen as a co-equal to the American president. Um, but I'm not sure you can appeal in some way that is in any way new to, to his vanity, his desire for relevancy. Putin wants to be relevant on Putin's terms. Um, and so if I had any you know, issues, I think it was smart to do the summit. I got a little uncomfortable with the, the degree of pomp around it. Um, Geneva, this kind of famous you know, diplomatic venue, uh, the, obviously the, the media frenzy, which was inevitable when you have the summit. Again, on balance, I think it was smart to do because you should, at the beginning of your presidency with a big, important country like Russia, uh, lay down like what your thinking is. And by the way, if they can at least just get some conversations going on nuclear weapons, let's not forget that's really important. Um, but I don't think you're going to change Putin or find some new way to appeal to him. He's dealt with three very different American presidents in Bush, Obama, and Trump. He's basically been the same person through that. I don't think there's some some formula that you know is going to have a bigger impact on his personality. The formula seems to be, at least it was repeated often enough, uh, that, that Biden seeks stability and predictability in a relationship that had gotten dangerously unstable. And one fruit of the summit seems to be, and I'd, I'd like your sense of this, a series of working groups that are now going to begin looking at cybersecurity, whether we should have a joint list of critical infrastructure that's off limits, uh, strategic stability with all the new weapons that the Russians and we are, are busy creating. I even thought I heard a uh, suggestion that there'll be working groups on, on regional issues like Syria. 
did you have the same sense first? And second, is that kind of structure for this relationship uh, a wise way to proceed given all the volatility and, and just, you know, ab outright authoritarian <laughs> nastiness yeah. of, of our adversary? Well, and this is kind of where I get the, you know, if, look, if I was Alexei Navalny's chief of staff, I'd feel the same way. I mean, why are we in any way legitimizing this person who is literally at the, the center of a global effort to destroy democracy? I mean, that, that you have to keep that in the back of your head. Um, at the same time, you know, they have nuclear weapons. They have a role that they're playing in a place like Syria. They're obviously um, currently, uh, you know, in Ukraine. And so... I, I think that having a set of working groups so you at least have lines of communication, it, it, at a minimum, that helps avert worse outcomes. I mean, there was some risk, David, back in the Obama years of, you'll recall, like, you know, deconflicting military operations in a place like Syria. You want to do that so that you don't have escalation. Um, I think on these cyber issues, the Biden team, I think, would like to kind of drag Russia into some conversation about norms what is the type of critical infrastructure that should be off limits to cyber attack? What are the responsibilities of states for ransomware criminal networks within their borders? I don't believe for a second that the Russians will be good faith partners on those issues, but I think the judgment is better to at least have this discussion with them, have channels through which we can raise concerns and see if we can mitigate things. This kind of happened on Ukraine too, where um, you know, I, I, I was reminded, David, of one of P President Obama's last in-person interactions with Putin, um, where, you know, they didn't, they basically planted the seed that became the group of countries that negotiated the Minsk agreement, which didn't solve the issue in eastern Ukraine, but provided a mechanism to kind of reduce the violence and have at least the semblance of a political process. That was success in a way, you know, and, and I'm not touting it. I'm just saying that sometimes what you're trying to do is set up processes that just prevent things from getting even worse and give you some pathway to climb back to a better uh, status quo. And so I think it's, it's worth them exploring that. Um, I do think that the scale of Putin's um, aggressions uh, makes it impossible for them to not be critical about things he's doing, like the detention of Alexei Navalny, in ways that will be provocative to Putin. And so it's kind of impossible to walk this line where you want it to be more stable and predictable. But the price of you kind of not addressing certain things Russia's doing gets uncomfortable pretty fast. Um, so I think, again, I think it's good to have structure around this relationship. At the minimum, it prevents worse things from happening. But you know, I, I, the idea that you're going to get through four years without a series of, you know, probably pretty significant disagreements, uh, you know, that I don't think is likely to happen. Let me ask you as a, now a, a commentator on, on the world and also somebody who's seen the presidency up close to an unusual extent, what, what's your assessment is of, of Biden uh, four months in? There was a kind of loose uh, caricature almost of him as a genial old guy, loquacious, um, you know, a product of all those years in the Senate. And it's seeming to me month by month that that uh, earlier version missed some important details. I, I'd 
ask you to kind of put on your commentator, also your your someday novelist hat, and just sketch for us Biden as he is. Well, you know, in a lot of ways, I actually think that this trip, um, I was like, okay, this is the Joe Biden presidency. You know, like <clears throat> this, th I can see his character infusing our foreign policy, who we are in the world, how these institutions are going to evolve from the G7 to NATO. Um, and, 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 and really that kind of you know, impromptu uh, scene on the tarmac at Air Force One, you know, that, that felt very much like the Joe Biden I, I saw and interacted with. And, you know, what I think it is, is this is a man who's been in public life longer than I think anybody, right, who's probably become president of the United States, um, who's been in roles related to, to America's position in the world, in the Senate as vice president, um, who probably always thought, you know, like anybody else who's been in those roles, so it's not unique to him. Well, if I was president, you know, I, I, I think I would know the, the better way of doing this. And, and it's had people around him for a long time, like, like Tony Blinken, who's alone in the room with him with, with Putin. And I, I think that, it, it, however, being president is just different than anything else you, you would ever do, including being vice president, obviously, including being a staffer, including being a senator. And I think what I've <clears throat> seen him do relatively quickly, and then you felt it on this trip, is like he's getting he's getting comfortable taking his worldview and his approach to politics, which is very informed by, as he said yesterday, personal relationships that he can forge and he can test where he can get things done through a set of personal relationships. I've heard that line, all foreign policies and logical extension of personal relationships a million times in meetings with Joe Biden. He's testing that. Um, he's, he's got an innate belief in uh, American exceptionalism and America's capacity to do big things on the world stage and at home that, again, I would almost describe as uh, against all evidence to the contrary. <laughs> you know, But I say that with admiration because I think a politician needs to be an optimist uh, and needs to have that attitude. Um, and he has just a ton of experience um, that, you know, can can sometimes lead to contradictory lessons, right? Um, the, the the accumulated experience you have, and I think what you what I sensed this week is him melding together this worldview, this view about personal relationships, this kind of innate confidence in America, and this set of experiences that leads him to believe it's worth testing a Putin meeting. Um, I can I, I can bring along the allies to to deal with the the, the challenge of China, uh, you know. And, and, and what we're beginning to see is, I think, what will become an increasingly familiar Biden presidency, um, which is one that is, um, again, very much driven by his instincts, his gut, his personal relationships with people, um, and this kind of insistence that America is in a better position than maybe we actually are. <laughs> uh, again, which I say with some admiration. It's not a critique. It's it's kind of the job of being a politician. Um, um, but it's it's been fascinating to watch as someone who, who saw him as vice president. Again, it's so, to understand the weight of every single decision coming to your desk, th that's totally a unique experience. Um, and, and you can feel him getting more accustomed to that. I don't even know if comfortable is the right word, but accustomed to that.
That sounds right to me. I've no noticed with Biden fewer words, uh, more self-confident sort of smiles, asides. Uh, yeah. Uh, I never thought of, of Joe Biden as, as snarky. He isn't quite, but, but there's a little more sharpness now. Yeah, scrappy. scrappy. You know, he's got a scrappiness. I remember, David, I had to write the speech Obama gave when he picked him as vice president. And I remember coming up with this phrase, um, scrappy kid from Scranton, um, which fit well with the skinny kid, you know, with a funny name. Um, but there's something to that. I mean, there's a scrappiness um, that I that I think is, you know, that I like, a kind of feistiness. Um, but, you know, as a former speechwriter, I know he didn't give a big speech on this trip laying out. I mean, the normal thing, right, is you give some big speech laying out your foreign policy or, you know, um, and I think that's not him. He's going to do it, um, you know, he's going to do it on a, in the sides, in comments he makes after meetings and, you know, comments to the press. Um, it's going to, you know, the, the his view of the world is something he kind of displays in stride um, more than doing what Obama might do, which is step back and give a big speech about it. One of the things that I like about your new book, uh, After the Fall, and, and liked uh, a lot about the previous book, The World As It Is, was a kind of uh, wistful critique of Obama, a discussion, you let yourself talk about the world that might have been, and implicitly think about uh, things that could have been done differently. Focusing for the moment on this question of the relationship with Russia and Vladimir Putin, what, what, what sort of uh, self-critique would you offer of the Obama approach, the, the things that in, in, in retrospect and reflection you might, might have done differently? Well, I think, um, and this is something that concerned me a little bit in what Biden was saying too, David. Um, we made a bunch of judgments that were actually quite similar to what Biden was describing in the press conference yesterday, that like, he wants Russia to have a certain standing on the world stage. He would be concerned about Russia suffering a certain amount of economic consequences. You know, we engaged him from a position of either pressure or, you know, uh, diplomacy, as if he's the leader of a country that thinks about the interests of his country. Um, and so, of course, he wouldn't want to um, face a devastating economic sanctions that you know, kind of keep them behind where they should be and that uh, complicate standard of living potentially for, for Russians. Of course, he he won't want to kind of risk being an international pariah, at least in the in the in the democratic world through some of his foreign policies. And 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 if we can kind of rally the world to communicate to him, you know, th that you're going to be essentially ostracized um, from these clubs, you know, you're out of the G8 on the rest of it, um, that would have an impact. And, and I, don't, I don't think that's the right way to think about Putin. Um, kind of like I was saying earlier, like he, he really is basically running a corrupt circle of cronies who run Russia like it's a, you know, a protection racket for them. You know, like he, 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 he wants to have the, all the power. He wants to be wealthy. And he wants to do things on the world stage that are either disruptive to democracy itself um, or disruptive to international order in ways that will force people to reckon with him. You know, we, we, 
we have to deal with him because he's in Syria, and so therefore we can't ignore him. Um, and 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 that's just that I, there's no easy answer to that, you know. So so I mean, it's like a lot, there's a you're right that there's a wistful critique. I also had tried to reckon with the limits of um, what do you do when there's just someone who's in charge of a country with a lot of nuclear weapons and vast natural resources who is basically behaving like he's running a criminal enterprise. I'm. And and so I think we could have done certain things differently. Uh, I would have, I think in retrospect, we could have been more, I think generally across the board, um, less restrained in our commentary on on human rights issues and the internal issues in places like Russia and China for that matter. Um, um, I'm not suggesting that, that that might've, you know, changed everything though. Uh, but I think it's important for people, I've tried to do this in this book, who've been in positions of some, some power, they've been in certain rooms, you know, the instinct is to get out and relentlessly and ferociously defend every single thing you did. Um, I find it much more interesting and probably valuable to get out and interrogate everything you did. Um, and um, it doesn't mean you don't defend the, the enterprise you were part of. It just means that, you know, let, like there's an inflexibility that that I criticized, right, in, in foreign policy. And, 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 and how can I criticize that without Kind of examining where what we might have done differently. I mean, I think if you look at the reset, for instance, um, which you know I still fully understand. You know, you know, Medvedev had come into power. Putin moved to the back. There was a bunch of business we could get done with them, um, but it it kind of obviously alighted um, this the giant question underneath the surface of Russian politics, which was what did Putin want to do? And clearly, in retrospect, he he just was going to come back. Um, and, and so how might we have used those years differently? Um, again, I'm not sure we could have prevented Putin from coming back to power. I mean, he had the cards. Um, but, you, you know, you might have addressed uh, like democratic, small d democratic issues more robustly, um, um, you know, it, it, whether, whether, whether you're in your dealings with Medvedev or your, your messaging to the Russian people. Let's turn to to, to that uh, issue of helping the Navalny's of the world because it's really the the broad theme of, yeah. of, of your of your book. Um, at one point, uh, you explained to somebody you were talking to, if I remember this right, that you asked about the book, and you say it's well, it's kind of how to do color revolutions better. Um, so, how do we help? Um, Alexei Navalny specifically, the leader of a, of a movement um, that's back on its heels a, a bit now, uh, an immensely brave person. But how do we help him so that um, this movement doesn't end up like its predecessors, uh, the, the movements in China don't end up flat on their back the way, I'm sorry to say, the Hong Kong protesters uh, and the and the children of Tiananmen now appear to be. How, how do we do that better? Well, it's funny actually. Navalny was when I connected with him uh, on Facetime the first time. He said to me, "Oh, so you're writing a book about how to do color revolutions better?" But he meant it as a joke. I mean, let's be very clear. Like, because part of what he was saying is that there are all these geniuses, like you know, in in America, who think we know how to, you know, uh, we know how to do this uh, instead of, you know, d I mean. One of the reasons why I was so, you know, enraged by Putin's presentation yesterday is this idea that Navalny is like a Western character, a tool of the U.S. That's that, that's precisely 
not who he is. You know, he he's very much his own man. He doesn't come, you know, he wasn't the kind of guy who came to Washington a lot and to testify in front of Congress and things like that. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but he, he doesn't want his organization to be seen as an extension of a color revolution. I think what can we do? I mean, the first and most overarching point of my book is that we need to get our own democracy in order. You know, that, that essentially the, 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 the democratic example that America is setting and the way that that ripples out around the world is the most consequential thing. And people in foreign policy can lose sight of that. Um, and I do think that, you know, with, with Biden, the, the idea that they talk a lot about democracies being able to deliver. And that's a part of it. But part of it is also just the health of, of our democracy and our people in this country. You know, people watch whether you know, there's roading restrictions here. People watch redistricting here. We, there's a playbook that is, in, that is symbiotic between the Republican Party and uh, some of the Putin-friendly autocrats, including Viktor Orban. Viktor Orban has you know, consolidated power by redrawing parliamentary districts, essentially gerrymandering, packing the courts with very right-wing judges, creating a media enterprise that is very similar to the right-wing media enterprise in this country. Um, so part of what we have to do is that, this is the wiring and health of our own democracy. I think in our foreign policy, though, we need to listen and look at what uh, uh, like a Navalny is doing. Okay, what is, his, what is his greatest strength? It's his exposure of Vladimir Putin's corruption. Um, you know, the, the video that was published the day Navalny returned to Russia and was put in prison that's gotten millions of views was about the lavish residence that Vladimir Putin has um, around uh, Sochi. Well, we could publicize that. I'm sure that the U.S. government is aware of the degree of corruption of Vladimir Putin and his circle and his cronies. Um, we sanction these people, but I think why not do some of the same type of work that Alexei Navalny was doing in exposing the corruption of a Putin or an Orban or, or the cronies that, that are around them? Clearly, that is something that is something of Achilles' heel for uh, autocrats. So I'd like to see us do that. And that's the kind of thing that, you know, in retrospect, is that a tool we could have reached for in the Obama years? And by the way, enforcement, and I know that Jake Sullivan and others in the Biden team are very focused on anti-corruption as a tool of, of, of small-D democracy. Um, you know, they, they utilize, I mean, I'm here in, in New York, David, visiting my parents. I can look out the window. There's a bunch of buildings that have gone up in the last decade that nobody lives in, <laughs> you know, the, where the Russian money just washes through. I mean, it, we could get money. It's not just about sanctions. It's about enforcement of money laundering and, and other uh, laws that have been hugely exploited by Putin in his circle. So uh, to me, it's, it's we in the U.S., the people who talk about helping people like Alexei Navalny should listen to people like Alexei Navalny. What are they doing that's effective? What, what he's doing is fighting corruption and publicizing it. So maybe that's what we should be doing. Well, there's a, there's a good challenge for you and your podcasting uh, former Obama mates. Uh, what, what I'm struck by with Navalny's videos is how funny they are. Um, yeah. You know, you can't uh, watch Putin's pals without laughing out loud. And I think that's part of the, the power, but, uh, but I, I hope you'll proceed with that. Um, so let me, in the time we have left, ask you to talk a little bit about domestic politics and how it plays into, into foreign policy, uh, the theme you were just uh, describing. Right now, there seems to be a, a basic question confronting Biden, which is whether he should continue to seek compromise bipartisan solutions that bring in 
enough of the people who voted for Trump that he really feels he's bringing the country back together again uh, in the way he talked about during the campaign. He is, he is a centrist man, man of the Senate, after all, or whether he should just uh, go for it, go, go, for, go to win, uh, use reconciliation to force through whatever legislation he can and just uh, hope and pray that on the other side of that, people will see that their lives are better, that these things worked out well. What's your what's your gut instinct on that basic question? Because I think that's going to dominate the next few weeks and months of, of Biden's presidency at home. I, I think you, I come down very hard on the go for it um, side of the equation here. And not because I, I want to, David. Like I, I've become, I think, seen as, you know, not that I, people think that much about me, but if they do, like, I think I've probably seen as a pretty partisan guy. That I, my first boss in D.C. was Lee Hamilton, you know, the very centrist uh, Indiana congressman. Um, I, I wrote speeches for Barack Obama throughout that 2007 campaign about coming together red states and blue states. Uh, I cannot ignore, and that's a big part of what After the Fall is about, we cannot ignore over a decade of an increasing radicalization in the Republican Party in this country that is a part deeply connected to and a part of a global trend of a turn to nationalism and authoritarianism and a particular flavor of that on the right, and I'd say far right. You have eight years of the Obama years. Is there a single thing that suggests that there will be anything of consequence that can achieve 60 votes in the United States Senate. I, I mean, maybe like essentially a, a highway bill, you know, and, but uh, like the, given the scale of the problems that we face, the idea of continuing to give a veto to people who've acted in such bad faith, who can't even condemn in, in unambiguous terms, an armed insurrection that attempted to overthrow American democracy. I mean, I, 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 some, I sometimes like have to, I remain incredulous that this is even, that there's even an effort to kind of think that the normal rules apply in terms of, of negotiating things. How can you negotiate with people that literally don't even want to investigate why their own workplace was overrun by a mob of, of pro-Trump supporters I mean, it, like, I, we just sometimes, and again, this is really useful in writing this book, if we looked at that as if it was another country, like, how would we describe the Republican Party if it was, if it was one of the, the major parties in some European country? So, like, you, so, so my point is, I, I, I think Joe Biden has to try to get as much done as he possibly can in the window that he can get things done, knowing he might lose the House of Representatives. I think that the appeal to the Obama-Trump voters and the middle of the road folks is Joe Biden. It's not bipartisanship. It's the fact that Joe Biden is a centrist. It's the fact that Joe Biden has a moderate disposition. The fact that Joe Biden can speak to people in the upper Midwest who've been left behind and don't feel represented in politics. I don't think those people are demanding that Joe Biden do a smaller infrastructure bill that is, can get the support of 10 Republicans. I think those people just like Joe Biden. And they prefer Joe Biden to what they see as the more left-wing element of the Democratic Party. And I think they're, so, so I wouldn't suggest that Joe Biden become some uber leftist, um, but I would suggest that he do as much as he possibly can 
in this two-year period, which may be the only two-year period when he can do anything, given the way in which the, the House is going to favor the, the Republicans after redistricting. That's clearly said and, and, and helpful. Let me ask you the question that runs through the Obama years, and that is, will this fever uh, on the right, this ever more radical and to my mind, irresponsible Republican Party, will this fever ever break? Or are we just condemned for the rest of our lifetimes to, to have to think about a country that's as radically divided as we are now? I, I hope so. Uh, um, there'd be nothing better for America than a strong, competent, responsible Republican Party that agrees with people, disagrees with people like me on a lot of things, you know, um, the size of government, national security, environment policies. I, I desperately want that Republican Party for the sake of our democracy. I do think that looking in, in this book, like if you take the, the structural, um, the ways in which, you know, globalization and technology and proliferation of social media, and I think a lot of kind of post 9-11 xenophobia that was unleashed, the extent to which a combination of, of real grievances about life in the 21st century, um, combined with racialized grievances after the election of the first black president and with the demographics of this country changing, there are structural reasons that the Republican Party, like a lot of other political movements around the world, you know, the BJP in India, you know, unfortunately we could list a lot, the Likud Party in Israel, has, has drifted in this kind of ethno-nationalist grievance-based direction. Um, and we have to understand that. It's not just a cast of characters. It's, there's structural things driving them there, including, again, technology and social media and the collapse of, of traditional media and, and the idea of agreed upon set of facts. So I think that it's going to take at least a generation here. This is a 10-year, 20-year project um, of, of American politics working through this kind of spasm of irresponsibility and extremity. Um, and and that's still the preferred outcome here. But I, I think the, the, this is not going to change and course correct in, 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 in a couple of election cycles, um, because the pattern has been, you know, after 2012, a lot of Republicans like, well, we have to kind of embrace the fact that this is a more diverse country and learn lessons for why Obama won. And they just did the opposite. And Trump lost and they keep moving that direction. The, the, the car is barreling down the highway and the Republican Party in the wrong direction at increasing speed. And that's not, you know, that's not going to change in two or four years. So I think we have to see it as a 10 or 20 year project. So, uh, Ben, my colleagues tell me that we have gone over, not surprisingly, it's a great conversation. The book is, uh, is after the fall. Uh, ben, it's great to welcome you to the commentariat, if not the blob. Um, and uh, I really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much, David. So uh, stay tuned. We'll be back at 11 today for a special on chasing cancer. Uh, and at 4 p.m. we'll have Craig Melvin, who is co-host of the Today Show here on Washington Post Live. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.